If you didn't catch it at the time of the announcements, my name is Jeff, one of the elders here at the church. I'm glad you've uh, come to worship along with us. We are continuing on in our study through the book of Acts, so if you would please go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 33. Again, chapter 5, 17 through 33. If you happen to have forgotten your Bible at home, you can use one of the ones in front of you. The page number there will be 859. If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, please take that one home with you. That would be a gift from us to you. Just like all the books that are there on the resource wall are free, we want you to take those books. We want you to use them as a helpful tool in your study of Scripture because the more we know of Christ, the greater love we will have for Him. As well, while you're turning uh, to Acts chapter 5 in your Bibles, I want to remind you of the Connect cards there, there in front of you. Our hope is that everyone would fill one out, members, regular attenders, and visitors, because they're a great way for us to learn how we might be able to pray for you or serve you. So uh, you can drop them off in the white baskets up here, or white boxes up by the windows, or that black box by the resource wall. Uh, but please, uh, fill those out so we can have those and be in prayer for you. Uh, today we have Garrett Unch, who's going to be reading our passage for today. So if you would, please stand with us, if you're able, in reverence of God's Word, as it is read aloud. Thank you. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the, priest, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent the, to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found none inside, no one inside. Now when the captain of the, of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you, are filled, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teachings, teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter, the apostle, answered, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of, to these things. And so... Is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat, and I will pray for us. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that we have this 
that we can come and hear from you on a daily basis. We're grateful, Lord, that you are the one who gives us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive this truth. Today, Lord, as we come to learn from you, uh, please give us greater, greater faith. Give us a greater understanding of how you desire for us to live and glorify you <clears throat> and be a good to one another. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace. It's in your son's name we pray in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, in today's passage, as we continue on in this narrative through the book of Acts, this passage speaks to the reaction of the Sadducees who controlled the Sanhedrin. Maybe you remember through, our, through this study that the Sanhedrin were this council of men who were sort of like the Supreme Court at that time for the people of Israel. And this passage, again, speaks of their reaction to what the apostles were doing through their divine commissioning. As well, we get to see God's response to the trouble that the apostles now find themselves in. Now, I expect that you remember that uh, we just learned about how the apostles were declaring God's truth as they were settling the foundation for what is true about Jesus, who is the Christ. We've been learning that over the last couple of weeks. And as a way of authentication, God allowed them to uniquely possess miraculous powers which let them heal people as well as perform many signs and wonders. Again, this ability was given and allowed as a way to show humanity that this message as well as those servant messengers came from God. They were sent by God. And as it was God's plan, many, many people were being saved. The Bible even says that more than ever this was happening. More than ever, people were getting saved, which is actually an incredible claim. Right? We talked about it. This is a, such an incredible claim. More than ever than Pentecost, more than ever than the additional 2,000 people around uh, when that man was healed who was uh, crippled all of his life, more than ever, apparently people began to believe and follow by faith in the true and living God, which again caused a reaction from those religious elite, from those who felt as though they were the ones whom God had anointed and appointed to lead Israel. If you would look back at verse 17 and 18, this was their response. But the priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. From studying this book, do you remember one of the main duties that the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin actually possessed. You remember one of those duties. We discussed it uh, earlier on uh, back in chapter 2 as well as a church. We talked about this when we walked uh, through and we studied, we preached through the Gospel of John. Uh, do you remember the duties of the Sanhedrin? There was, there was many, but one of them, one of the major responsibilities was uh, what was placed upon them was that they were meant to protect the people from false teachers and false truths that were not from God or from the ideas that did not honor God. And coincidentally, we're going to learn uh, a bit about that next week as we're going to hear more uh, of what they did in the past and actually how they did that pretty well, how they did a pretty good job of this really up until this point. This time, as it was really the same when Jesus met with them, they seemed to have overlooked what God was doing as God was revealing himself. They seemed to have overlooked what was true as they were mainly just simply considering themselves, even though 
As they said themselves, they honestly could not deny what was happening. They could not deny what these miracles uh, were being done. They couldn't deny that this was actually happening. They couldn't deny it because it was happening publicly. They could not deny that these things that everyone was witnessing with their eyes actually were from God because those miracles could only have come about by the power of God. They declared that themselves. So their reaction here was not so much about protecting truth. Their reaction here was not so much about preventing heresy or maintaining God's honor. Rather, as we are told by Luke, what motivated their hearts to try and stop the apostles from preaching and teaching was jealousy. It was simple jealousy. Now, interestingly, that word jealousy that Luke uses here is actually the same Greek word that John used when he retold the event when Jesus went into the temple and he overturns uh, the money changers, when he overturns the, the, the tables in the temple because he's so frustrated in John 2, verse 17. There, Jesus, as he came into the temple, he was filled with this righteous, holy anger as he had this holy and righteous zeal for God's house, for the temple, because he rightly wanted his father's house to be a place of worship and truth and not a marketplace for personal gain. In fact, that moment that we're talking about, the one when Jesus goes into the temple, that was actually a fulfillment of a prophecy that was sung about in Psalm 69, 9, when there would be this zeal for the father's house. You see, Jesus' zeal, this, this, this zeal that Jesus had, came about from a kind of jealousy. That's why the words are connected. Jesus' zeal, which was the fulfillment of prophecy, was a kind of jealousy that would not have God the Father being dishonored. Whereas it was with the religious leaders, as we're being led by John, we're led to believe that their jealousy came about because they wanted to be the ones who were honored. You see the difference? Jesus had this zeal and jealousy that God would not be dishonored, but there was jealousy amongst these religious leaders because they wanted the honor. They had feelings of jealousy because the apostles were gaining converts. The Christian community, the Christian church was continuing to grow more than ever, and the people of Israel more than ever were clamoring to hear and to learn from the apostles. So they arrested them. So they threw him in jail. Although this time it wasn't just Peter and John. This time it was all the apostles. I suppose this is what they thought. They thought if we can keep them from talking to anyone, then no one will hear what they have to say. Verse 19, But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now notice, the apostles did not resist this arrest. They did not organize some sort of public protest and let everyone know just how wrong they thought this was, mainly because they knew what was true. Because they knew what was the truth. And actually, their reaction is really uh, a pretty popular apologetic for the truthfulness of Scripture. After all, who would be willing to die for a lie? Right, The apostles, they were being arrested and likely they were going to be tried as prophets. And if they became uh, known as false prophets, well, then the law called for their death. So why would they lie? Or why would they be willing to be arrested for a lie? Why would anyone die for a lie? 
Their confident assurance was not in their temporal, personal comfort, though. Their confident assurance wasn't wrapped up there. Rather, they were sure of their true security because of what was theirs. Remember going back again to Peter and the man who was healed, who was crippled all of his life. Peter went up to him and he said, I have no money to give you, but what I will give you from what I have. I will give you what I have. They were uh, secure. They were sure of their true security because of what was theirs, because they had the eternal blessing of salvation in Christ alone, which could never be taken away from them. They knew what was true. They knew what was theirs. But still, during the night, an angel of the Lord shows up and releases them from where they were being held. Now, there are actually many references in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament that talk about angels showing up to minister to those who are serving the Lord. And it can be a bit tricky to sometimes figure out, is this, is this a manifestation of an angel or is it the pre-incarnate Christ manifesting himself? I think most of the time we can differentiate the two by just reading the text, by just reading what the Bible actually says about itself. Because there is if you were to take the time to think about it, a, dif a, a difference between an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord, right? There's sort of a nuance there, an angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord. Here in verse 19, it says that it was an angel of the Lord. Therefore, we can feel confident that this was in fact a heavenly being, a heavenly messenger who was sent by Christ the Lord to help his servants, to help his apostles but it was not Christ himself because he was and is now sitting down at the right hand of the Father. He is sitting down at the right hand of the Father, meaning his work is finished. Salvation is finished, which we'll learn a bit more about in just a moment. So all the apostles were miraculously delivered from their prison, but also they were once again, if you notice, commissioned to go and preach to all the people. And they were to preach what Luke tells us, or the way that Luke says it, is the words of this life, which I think is a very fitting phrase, right? It is actually very uh, communicative of what they are to preach, because it has always been God's way to bring the elect to himself through preaching and teaching of his word. We've talked about this from the beginning of Acts, that we must preach because how is someone to believe unless they hear? And how is someone to hear unless someone preaches? And what are we to preach but the words of life and truth, which are about Jesus Christ? And yes, all of creation does testify to the fact that there must be a creator, logically. There must be a creator. How else could any of this or all of this ever exist without one? But it is and always has been God's direct decree, his word, which informs us about life. It informs us about this life, about this newness of life and how we can live it in abundance through him. He is the one who has always revealed that because he is, as he said it himself, the way, the truth, and the life. It's a famous little phrase, but really think about it, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. The Jewish people, they were chosen. The Jewish people, they were blessed. They were blessed because God used them to bring about, the creator God used them to bring about his son in the flesh. And yes, they did worship the God of the Bible. 
Sometimes we villainize the Jewish people in Scripture. We villainize the Pharisees and the Sadducees a little bit too much. They did a lot of things wrong. We do too. But sometimes we over-villainize them. But they did worship God. They were trying to honor him the best that they could. And they did have God's word given to them through the law and the prophets. Therefore, they should have known, just like we are commanded to know, that the only way to the Father who is in heaven is through, is through himself. They should have known. The only way to the Father who is in heaven is through himself. And those are Jesus' words, not mine. It's not something cleverly that I came up with. Jesus is actually quoted saying something very similar in John 14. In John 14, he says that no one comes to the Father except through me. And that phrase got him in a lot of trouble because it puts him on an equal field with the God of all creation as he is the God of all creation. And it's actually what got him crucified for blasphemy. Again, according to God's plan. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the word that existed before all things, helping us understand that he is the creator of all things. This is how all of this connects. But back to our text. The apostles are freed. The Sanhedrin are now awake and they are getting ready to gather at council in order to decide on what they want to do with these rebels. How are they going to put a stop to their mouths so they can gain back the authority over the people? But then as they arrive, as they begin to gather in the council rooms at the temple, they get the news that the apostles are gone. They've escaped from prison and I'm sure they asked themselves, how in the world did that happen? Right? The gates are closed. The, the, the locks are on the, on the jail doors. The, uh, the guards are still in place. How in the world could something like this happen? We're also told that they wondered, at least for a moment, what could this mean? For a moment, they were bewildered. For a moment, they were perplexed. And they began to think about a miracle occurred. What could this mean? but then their attention is snapped back and their hearts are suddenly consumed with this anger yet again as they are told that those men are back in the temple preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. They would not obey. So they again, they make the call for them to be collected and brought before the council. Again, the apostles did not resist. They came quietly and they went with the, capital, the, the captain and his officers and now finally, the religious Jewish leaders can speak directly to the apostles. They said in verse 28, we strictly charged you to not teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Just recognize how disconnected from reality these men are. They're absolutely disconnected from reality. They are so filled with pride and so filled with self-aggrandizement that they cannot even bring themselves to mention the name of Jesus. The only way they refer to him is as this man. As well, they apparently feel as though their slate has been washed clean. They have, because as you see, they are clearly offended by the apostles' accusation regarding their guilt in Jesus' death. Something I will remind you, they willingly took on when they cried for Pilate to crucify Jesus. They willingly cried for that. 
In Matthew 27, 25, they declared his blood be on us and our children. They willingly took the responsibility as well as they placed it on their children. The guilt for Jesus' blood, meaning his death, there's murder, was something that they, through blind arrogance, asked for. They asked for it. Which is why Peter and the apostles responded in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, there is a whole lot in those four verses. There is a lot to unpack. Therefore, this time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you, Maranatha, to go and study those four verses in particular on your own. I'm going to ask you to take the time this week to study 29 through 32 on your own because, Maranatha, we must be a church that studies Scripture. We must be a church that works to try and understand God's Word for ourselves. We can't just listen to other people talking. But I would suggest that you do this with somebody else. Grab a friend or a family member or maybe a community group member. Maybe you can do this in your community groups, but we must be studiers of the Word. It is there for us to hear from God. But I am going to provide just a little bit of help. All right? Because it is necessary, hear me, necessary that we understand what it means that Jesus sits at the right hand of God. Because those religious elite, as they heard the apostles make that claim, they would have understood, they would have keyed in on that particular phrase. Their ears would have immediately perked up because they would have known that that phrase spoke to a place of honor. It spoke about a place of power, the place of eternal authority. Therefore, the ramifications of going against this all-powerful authority would be severe if these rebels would have been correct. Going back to the Psalms, listen to Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again, it was the responsibility of the Sanhedrin, these, these, uh, these men with just a wealth of knowledge. It was their responsibility to know the scriptures, to know this prophetic truth. Therefore, these religious elites would have recognized that if, again, the apostles were correct, then they would be considered the enemies of God that were being spoken of as they were the ones who, command, who condemned the Christ to death. The apostles were right. They would be the enemies of God. But what happens next, as they hear this rebuke, as they hear this call of repentance, as they hear the word of God spoken, what happens next is clear evidence that sin is what we are by nature without the mercy of God. Their response is a, is a testimony to how by nature we are, we are men and women of wrath, of sin, without the mercy of God. Because after hearing the truth from God, it wasn't repentance 
After hearing the truth of God and how he is willing to forgive, it wasn't repentance. The council instead is consumed with rage and they are filled with this evil desire to murder the apostles, to kill them. That's their response. Not repentance, not humility, but rage. But that's not what happens here. In God's mercy, that is not what happens here. Rather, the apostles are released. They're released to go on and continue to build God's kingdom per his providential care, per his, his, his recognition of what is necessary to be done. They're released, which we're actually going to learn more about next week. But before I finish, I want to share a few truths with you that we can practically take in and apply from these verses. You see, as we go on and continue to study this narrative of the entire book of Acts that spans some 30 years, we are learning that we should trust and believe that God has providentially purposed our steps. That he is sovereign, that he knows all things, he is present through all things, that he providentially purposes our steps. That's what Proverbs 16.9 tells us. Proverbs 16.9 reads, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It speaks to his sovereignty as well as his authority. He is the creator and he is the perfecter of life, the one who upholds all things simply by the power of his words. That's Hebrews 1. Think about that. He is the one who created all things and also upholds all things simply by the power of his word. Which is why the apostles called him leader and savior. And he says he's, he's at the right hand of the Father, our leader and Savior, Jesus. And it's interesting that the word used here for leader can also be written as pioneer. And I think that word pioneer speaks beautifully to what Jesus actually does for us. Because as our pioneer, he is the one who leads the way. He is the one that goes before us. He is the one who shows us the way. He not only cuts the path, but he also walks us down the path. And also, everything which he promises will come to pass. He is our leader, our pioneer. He is also our savior. Everything that he promises will come to pass because he took on death for us. He took on what we deserve so we don't have to. So that we can know by his resurrection that we too will get to live in the newness of life. That's just Romans 6, 4. Maranatha, we, uh, or rather what this passage in Acts is revealing to us is that Jesus is who he says that he is. Jesus is our Christ. And that he can, that he will, and he has done whatever is needed to be done so that we who love him will be delivered to him. He is our pioneer. He is our leader. He is our savior. Yes, there is a challenge in this passage as well. There is a challenge here to live your life boldly and to not fear anything. It doesn't matter what it is or who it is. Don't fear anything that can hurt your physical body. But the bravery for that battle, this consistent battle that we all face day in and day out, will never come from making your enemy less than what it is. Instead, what will give us the unashamed confidence to go on preaching and believing the gospel is only the truth about Jesus the Christ, who is our Lord 
and Savior. It is only the gospel. It is only the truth. It is not legalism. It is grace. It is not religion. It is mercy. That is what will give us the power to go on living unashamedly with this assured confidence that the world looks for and recognizes and longs for. The world desires what the church has been given. Now, I thought I would end with this because it sums up everything that I think this passage is trying to communicate to us. It's Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21. I'll just read it for you and we'll finish. It says this. This is Paul speaking to the Ephesian church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That's the good news. That is the glorious reality that we have because of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and trust you. Thank you for this. (laughs) Thank you for your word. Lord, please give us greater faith. Give us a deep desire to follow after you in obedience. We do love you. Help us, Lord, to be a testimony to the truthfulness of your grace and mercy. Thank you for today. Thank you for loving us the way you do. Thank you for allowing us to love you. In Jesus' name, the power of your spirit, amen.